under Psalms, and we'll look at verses 4 and 5. Psalms 30, verses 4 and 5. And it reads as follows. Or, or excuse me, yeah, 4 and 5, 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and for uh, favor, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I apologize, I had asked Brother Wright to read five and six, but it's actually four and five. Uh, Now, although we've chosen to focus on these uh, two verses from this psalm, I I want to begin by looking at the backstory uh, because uh, there is a significant backstory to this particular psalm. It's one of the ones that we know that David writes from a particular experience. And it's the backstory that actually gives us context for the whole psalm as well as sheds lights, uh, light on various portions of it, both in our text and outside of the text. Now, I think that the key to understanding uh, the backstory is actually found in the title of the psalm itself. Uh, we are told in the title line that this is a song for the dedication of the temple. Now, that's kind of interesting, and it should cause our ears to perk up, because we know that the temple is something that was built by Solomon. And so David was not, uh, he was not alive when the temple was built in Jerusalem, nor was he actually present when the dedication took place. So one could say that David wrote this with the, because he did have a desire to build the temple, and one could say that David wrote it and, and they used it later when the temple was rebuilt or was actually built. But I think what actually takes place is that there is a first dedication, which is part of the backstory. And this Psalm of David was probably uh, composed with that as a backdrop. And then later, when Solomon builds the temple and has the dedication service, this was probably also sung. So I would be in agreement with a number of other Old Testament uh, scholars that would suggest that the backstory, which is alluded to in this dedication, is really the, the thrust of this psalm. So let's, let's look at three things to unpack the backstory. And in unpacking the backstory uh, to this particular psalm, we'll connect it to the content of the psalm itself, and then we'll make some closing observations on our specific text. So first of all, we get a sense of the backstory by looking at um, a couple of things that are found in this psalm itself. Verses 6 and 7. David references a period in his life when he became, really to to rephrase it a little bit, David is referencing a point when he became puffed up and proud in his prosperity. Even though he doesn't use those words, but but that's really the sentiment in verse 6. As for me, I said, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. And so basically what, base, uh, what, what uh, David is saying, and I agree with Adam Clark and others, is that he's referencing a particular mindset 
where he took comfort and confidence not in God, but in physical things. And so therefore, Adam Clark and a number of others use or, or see this as the point of, the, the point of reference uh, being the time that David actually took a census of God's people. Uh, in doing this, in fact, you look in, in, as a matter of fact, in First Chronicles chapter 21, and we'll be looking at a few places or a few references to First Chronicles, but in First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. In short, David saw uh, the strength and the security of Israel in the numbers. In fact, what he was actually numbering, it wasn't just how many people, but it was how many men that were ready to go to, to war. In other words, those who are army-suited men. And so they took all of these numbers, and the numbers are recorded in both Second Samuel and First Chronicles. But David, in other words, what he's referencing in verse 6 when he says that I, uh, when, when, when he says, uh, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. What David does, in, in essence, is look at the swelling numbers of the military of Israel and somehow, even momentarily, and it's true and it's possible, even for a solid saint like David to get sidetracked and to think that his strength and his security were in these things. In fact, we see other places where David kind of references himself, not just others, when he says some trust in chariots and some trust in armies, but I will trust in the power of God. That's probably as a point of reference because David at this point has numbered the people and he sees security in those numbers. And so therefore his, his confidence was in the number and the size of his army rather than in God's presence and his promises to his people. So that's, that's probably the, 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 uh, the turning point. That's, that's the backstory. When David took a census of the people, which he alludes to in this psalm by referring to when he was what he thought in his period of prosperity, which is really pride. But the second thing that we see in verse 7, David says that God hid his face from him, or he hid himself from him. In verses 2 and 3, he says that, that uh, I cried out to you, and you, heard, you healed me, and you delivered my soul from Sheol, uh, in, and, uh, and you restored me to life. In verse 8, he says, I pleaded, I plead for mercy. And so what is it, again, that he's referring to? And if, this is, if the point of reference is when David numbered or sens uh, took a census of the people, then I think what David is re referring to here, and we know, uh, we'll look at, at some of the things that took place after, after he actually uh, numbered the people, but I think this terror that he speaks of, this idea of God hiding himself from him, this needing to be healed, this needing to be restored from the grave, it's found, it's, it probably references something that a single incident, a single line actually in scriptures, that's not even given much detail. But actually again in First Chronicles chapter 21 verse 7, 
in the immediate aftermath of David numbering the people, it references David, uh, or, or when we, we read this, but God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. We're not told what he did. In fact, the scriptures doesn't tell us not only what is meant by him striking Israel, but we don't even know how long it lasted. Now, the, the, the tendency and, and the temptation is to assume that David is referring to the pestilence that follows. But no, that's not it. We see that doesn't come until later. There is something that took place that is, is, is so severe. It's only mentioned there. It's not even mentioned in the passage in 2 Samuel. But it's something that was so severe that it definitely came from the hand of God that caused David to cry out. In verse 8 of, of, of that passage in uh, first, uh, second, uh, first Chronicles, David, after the Lord uh, strikes Israel, it says, David cries out and he says, I have sinned greatly and that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. In other words, whatever it is that is unspecified, Whatever it is that is unnamed, that, that is simply described as God striking Israel. Not only does it strike Israel and has an obvious effect throughout the land, but it strikes David to the core. He knows that whatever, it's, whatever this is that, that causes God to strike Israel in the way that he does, that it is a result of David's own particular action. So when David here refers to God hiding himself, when David refers to the Lord delivering him from Sheol, I don't think the point of reference is the pestilence. I think the point of reference is actually verse 7, where it says the Lord struck Israel. Well, that brings us to the third thing, and the third thing is David, David uh, gives, or God gives David three choices. You see, once he strikes Israel and David cries out and asks for forgiveness and, and confesses his sin before the Lord, the Lord gives David three choices, three choices as to a suitable punishment for his particular actions. Those three choices are, one, he could have three years of famine, and famine would obviously have a direct, uh, a direct economic and physical effect on the people. Secondly, he says, he will allow three months of devastation from his enemies. And then thirdly, he is offered three days of pestilence from the hand of the Lord. Well, David's choice is pestilence. He gives a great reason for it. He goes on to say, Lord, I, I, I don't want to fall into the hands of men, but I, I know he chooses the pestilence that comes directly from the hand of God because he says God's mercy is great. Now in those three days, we are told that 70,000 men of Israel die. 70,000 men of Israel die. Two observations need to be made about that. That these 70,000 men that die cut directly against or goes directly to the heart of David's pride. Remember, the whole thing starts because David numbers the armies. 
I think the total number is something like 800,000 that he numbers. And the Lord cuts out 70,000 men. So that sort of goes directly to what David was puffed up about. And the Lord cut his numbers, not as dramatically, but probably in the same vein as he cut the army of Gideon. And the Lord says, no, this army is too big for you to get victory because you're going to be talking about how good you are. And so the Lord, the Lord says that in this pestilence, he cuts off 70,000 men. And so this is, that's one angle of it. So you say, well, okay, that's the pestilence. But here's the other observation on this pestilence. Not only does God go directly to the source of David's pride, but it's 70, the loss of 70,000 men in three days pales in comparison to the Lord striking Israel before the pestilence. Again, that, that makes verse 7 of, 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 first, of, of first Chronicles stand out all the more. When it says that the Lord struck Israel, we don't know for how long, we don't know in what degree, but that was worse than losing 70,000 men in three days. Well, the aftermath of this causes, uh, as a matter of fact, it's not even David, it's the Lord. Uh, once the pestilence is over, the Lord dispatches an angel of the Lord, and he sends word to David through the prophet Gad. And he tells, he tells uh, Gad to tell David to build an altar on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Build an altar on the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. That's a great passage to read, by the way, because Je uh, Ornan is prepared to just give David the, the, the property. But David says, no, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. And he, what he does is he, he buys the threshing floor. He buys Ornan's threshing floor, and from there, or on there, David builds the altar, and he offers burnt offerings and peace offerings uh, uh, to the Lord. Now look just for a moment again in First, uh, first Chronicles chapter 21, verses 26 and 27. And this is the aftermath of, of David offering the altar, and it's kind of unusual the way that it plays out, but in verse 20, uh, verses 26 and 27, it says, And David built there an altar to the Lord, and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offerings. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. Now that's, here's, here's why this is significant. Years later, when Solomon would build the temple to the Lord, the location of the temple is actually the threshing floor of Ornan. So David writes Psalms 30, not just for a future dedication of the temple, but David actually writes Psalms 30 in the immediate backdrop of having experienced the chastening of the Lord and the Lord 
offering up or on the Lord commanding David to build an altar and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, that's the backstory. So this, is a, this, this, this song of dedication is not just for the future. It has the past as a point of reference. Now with that, let's just notice a, a couple of things to, to single out our text in verses 4 and 5. And the first thing I want to call attention to are four pairs of antithetical thoughts. As a matter of fact, if you're keeping notes, here's what you can do. Write on the left side of your page four words. Anger, moment, weeping, and night. And then on the right side, just opposite of each of those words, write on the opposite of anger, write favor. The opposite of moment, put lifetime. The opposite of weeping, put joy. And the opposite of night, put mourning. And with that, I think what David is doing is David is conveying a particular message to the people of God, not just in the future, but even now. David wants to convey to the people of God that, A, they are the recipients of lifetime favor. He wants them to know that the favor of God, this is not going to be true for everyone, and one of the reasons we want to be clear on this is because so many people take this verse and make it mean everything, and it can't mean everything or else it means nothing. David wants God's people to know, those who look to him for eternal salvation, here's what you need to know, that God's favor, God's favor is a lifetime thing. It's not, it's not lifetime because you commit to it. It's lifetime because he does. So all of this, and, and hold in mind also that favor, and I, I, I hate the trite little ways that people say, oh, favor ain't fair, and, you know, I'm just, you're, I got to get God's favor. Listen, favor of God comes from God. It comes from God. And the favor that he gives is a lifetime. That's what he wants God's people to know, that if you look to him for salvation, then what he has given you is a lifetime of favor. Now, that's, that's important for us to understand that God's grace, to put it in, very clear, in a very clear vernacular, God's grace ain't going nowhere. Amen. Amen. I, I know I, some English teachers, their ears are probably, you know, it's, it's yeah, that's, that's like scratching a chalkboard. And I know I have some English teachers in my background who are saying, oh, no, he didn't say that. He knows better. But God's favor towards those that he has brought into a saving relationship ain't going nowhere. Double negative. That's what God, that's what David wants to convey to the people of God. God's favor is not leaving. It is lifetime. And you say, well, whose lifetime? God's. Amen. God's favor is equivalent to his lifespan, which means he who was and is and always will be, was and is and always will be favorable to those that he saves by his grace. Here's the second thing that David is conveying to the people of God, is that God's anger 
is present. It is a present reality. God's anger is a present reality. We need to parcel that out a little bit because we speak of God's anger in broad and general terms. In other words, the evidence of God's wrath is present in the world in which we live. So God's general displeasure towards sin is evident. We just re- heard recently, as a matter of fact, last Saturday, a tsunami that, that, that hit in Indonesia. A tsunami. Tsunamis are evidence of God's anger. And, 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 and we hear of earthquakes. Earthquakes are evidence. I know we have the seismological explanations and the geological explanations, but earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes where it brings destruction upon human beings is not to be explained, even though there is an earthly explanation, but ultimately it's theological. That's what he wants us to know. It's theological. These things don't just happen. No, they happen because the creation is under a curse. So in a broad sense, what God, what David wants to convey to the people of God is that God's favor towards you is forever, but his anger is also a reality. His general anger is a reality. Therefore, we go back to homes that are locked and we hope that the locks held up. And we hope we make it home, right? Because God's anger is evident not only in the natural disasters, but God's anger is evident in this in a broad and a general way because human beings don't act right. And so this is evidence of the anger of God. He, he has turned them over and he's let wicked people exist because of his anger. That's at the backdrop of, of, of David's numbering the people. As a matter of fact, in, in, first, in 2 Samuel, in 1 Chronicles, it says that Satan caused David to do this. But then we read in 1 Samuel, where the Lord, or 2 Samuel, where it says, and the Lord was angry with Israel and caused David to sin. David, your God, is not the cause of the sin, but God uses the pride that was in David's heart as a tool of chastening for his covenant people. So in a broad sense, as we look, David wants God's people to know that while God's grace or his favor is a lifetime commitment from God, those who are the recipients of that lifetime commitment of grace and favor are also exposed to elements of God's general anger in this world. But not only is God's anger against the, or, uh, in this world evident in a broad sense, but I think David also wants his people to know about God's parental anger. You see, tsunamis and earthquakes are because of God's general disposition towards sin. But God also chastens. And this is what the writer, this is what Paul wants to get across in 1 Corinthians when he chastens the people of God and he says that, that all of, for these reasons, the, the hand of God is at work against the people of God. He says, for this reason, because you, because you have, in, instead of being unified, you are split. Because you are suing one another. 
because you are acting in ways that are inconsistent with grace. He says, therefore, for this reason, many are weak, many are sick, and many are asleep. Then he goes on to say, but that's the chastening of God. And he tells them to examine themselves. He says, because when we are, when we are judged, we are being chastened. We're not so that we won't be judged with the world. Peter says judgment begins with the household of God. And so therefore, David is not only referencing God's general displeasure against sin as it's seen in the created order, but he is, being, he is making God's covenant people mindful of the fact that God's displeasure is also, his parental displeasure is also evident within his covenant community. Isn't that what they have just experienced? At two levels, if, if we go back to the census that was taken by David, at two levels, God allows David to number the people because of his displeasure towards his own people. But then as a result of it, he lays his hand against them and strikes them. And then actually at three levels, because once he strikes them, then he comes back and gives three days of pestilence in which 70,000 men die. Now we know that God is gracious. And we do speak of his grace. And we know that we cannot out his grace. But God wants his people to know that he still is displeased with children. He loves us, but he is still displeased when we do not walk as children of light. So therefore, David wants God's people to know that they are the recipients of lifetime divine favor. And the people who are recipients of lifetime favor are also going to be experienced or exposed to divine anger. So in other words, because you are a recipient of divine favor does not mean that it won't snow on your house, except in Miami, right? It doesn't mean that you will be, that that all tornadoes are going to hit everybody but you. No, because God's favor is on display. And it doesn't mean that you won't get caught up in this or that or the other. No, God's anger is on display. Display. It will be seen in the sin that you experience. It will be seen in the destruction and devastation that we will see in the world. But God's anger is also present, and it's a present reality for the people of God as we, as we eschew God's grace, as we eschew or we, as we, we neglect the means that God has appointed for our growth, and as we fail to be what God has called us to be. So God's favor is lifetime. But the favor of God does not mean that the anger of God does not exist. But also David wants God's people to recognize that because we are the recipients of lifetime favor and because we are exposed to God's actual anger does not mean that it won't last. That, in other words, that, that God's grace, the presence of his anger, which brings about weeping, does not mean that he is no longer favorable towards us. That's what we have to understand. 
as the people of God. And I think that's part of what David wants God's people to recognize that just because you hurt, just because you are going through the valley of the shadow of death does not mean that he is not favorable towards you. And here's what he is doing. He's putting, and one of the reasons, by the way, that is important, I think, is because if we don't realize that the dark seasons that we go through is not, does not mean that we are no longer recipients of his favor, we will do anything to buy back his favor. In other words, we will walk lines, we will allow people to put hands on us, we will pray prayers, we will buy gimmicks, we will buy books, we will discipline ourselves, we'll journal, we'll fast, we'll do anything that we can to get his favor back. And here's what David is saying. No, understand, don't, don't let anything override this, that as the children of God, you are the recipients of a lifetime favor from God. So whatever else you do with all of the seasons that you go through, the ups and downs that are in you or that you are in, understand it and interpret it through a different lens. It is not judgment. I remember uh, years ago, we had bought a new car, and, and brother came over, saw the car in the parking lot, and he said, oh, I see somebody's living right. <sighs> wow. It's, and, 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 but you'd be surprised at how many people think that. And so here's what David doesn't want God's people to do. He does not want them to equate difficult seasons, even parental anger, or even God's general anger as it's seen within the created order. He does not want people to think that somehow they have lost God's favor. But here's what I love what he does here. David also reminds them, remember those words, anger, moment, weeping, and night. Those are the realities of living in a fallen world. But here are the realities of the people of God. Doesn't mean there won't be expressions of divine anger. It does not mean there will not be momentary difficulties and challenges. It does not mean that you will not weep. And it does not mean that you will not experience seasons of night. But what it does, what is being conveyed here is that favor. And what is the favor of God? The favor of God is God's grace towards us. It is to be in eternal, unbroken, and unbreakable fellowship with God. You know, God, and it's amazing because you just think of the people in your lives and, and think of different things, no matter how close you might think you are, can you think of things that you might do or have done that shatters relationships forever? I mean, I know of family situations, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, where their relationships will never be the same. And then you hear their story and you might even say, well, yeah, that was pretty rough. Brothers and sisters, here's what God wants us to know. Don't evaluate your relationship with him by any relationship you experience in this world. Here's what he wants us to know. My favor towards you is lifetime. 
And, you know, I think about this because I said the lifetime is connected to God's lifetime. And I think about marriage ceremonies where it says, until death do you part. And you know what the truth is? Every marriage until Jesus returns will end in death. But here's what God is saying, that my favor towards you as, as, as long as I live. Brothers and sisters, that's a lifetime. And so what God wants us to know is he doesn't want us to be so overwhelmed with evidence of his anger in the world or his parental anger towards us that somehow it shrouds, it covers, it, it diminishes the fact of his favor. Because he wants us to know that this displays of his anger, whether it's the anger, his disposition towards sin in the world in general, or even his parental anger is still momentary. Whether it's the anger of God's, God's anger and wrath against unbelievers, that's not going to be forever. It, it is momentary. There will be a time when the lion will lie down with the lamb. There will be a time when men will not take up arms against one another. There will be a time where there will be peace. As Jesus spoke to the, the raging sea, peace be still. There will be a time when there will be peace. So the discomfort and the, and the disorder that we experience is momentary. But then also weeping the emotional effects of living in a fallen world and being fallen people, weeping is, is, is supplanted by the joy of the Lord. And the joy, I've mentioned this um, in times past, but I remember preaching at a church in, in Minnesota uh, about the joy of Christ. And the point that we made is that the joy, Christian joy, is like our righteousness. The righteousness that, that gives us a right standing before God is accomplished by someone else. And so it is with the joy, because Jesus says, my joy I give to them, because our joy is inadequate for God's grace. And, and so therefore, the confidence and the comfort of the people of God is where there was weeping, and there's always reason for weeping, so to speak, we have a greater joy that is greater than all of our sorrows. We have a joy that is greater than all of our discomforts and our disorders. We have an unmovable joy because the joy that we have, again, Jesus says, my joy I give to them. And what we're doing, just as we are growing into his righteousness, we are growing into his joy. And one of the things that we know for sure is that just as when we see him, we will be as he is, when we see him, our joy will finally be fine-tuned and it will be all that it's supposed to be without any blemish and without any failure. But then also he wants us to know that weeping is for a season. He wants us to know, for the people of God, David wants them to know that the nighttime is temporary. 
that it's, it's here, it's a reality, you can't escape it, it can be anchored and it can be attached to the fact of divine anger and there is weeping that comes with it, but understand this, nighttime is only for a season. So he wants us to therefore look past the night and know that there's a morning. Now, brothers and sisters, what this does not mean, it does not mean that every difficulty will find an end in this life. That may happen. What it does mean is that every difficulty will find its end when this life ends. Because there's a morning. The morning that David is speaking of is the morning that comes with that which is encaptured in the house of God that is being dedicated. David is basically telling God's people, don't, don't worry about it because understand that I know that there is, that you're weeping right now and I know that you, you have reason to weep right now and it would be something wrong with you if you didn't. But don't think that the anger of God means that you've somehow lost his favor because the anger of the Lord is only for a moment. But the favor of God is for a lifetime. And if the favor of God is for a lifetime, then that means weeping will give way to eternal joy. And joy will usher us in to a bright and shining day. Look at the way the writer uh, John in in the book of Revelation expresses it concerning uh, this, this, this light and concerning this, this eternal daytime. In Revelation chapter 21... It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them or be uh, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We are told later that there will be a light in the city and the light will be the, the, the countenance of the Lamb. David is basically telling God's people is that God who loves you, loves you eternally. And don't think that the anger that is displayed within the created order negates God's love for you. His love, his favor is lifetime. And therefore the joy that he has fashioned for us is greater than the weeping that we endure. Weeping endures for a season. But we know that joy comes in the morning, and thank God there's a morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that we are surrounded by vestiges of your wrath. We know that we live in a world of disorder. And our peace at times is disturbed. 
But we thank you for the gift of your grace that is greater than all of our sorrows. So we thank you for your word of of dedication from your servant. That your hand, once it has been turned from wrath, your favor is lifetime towards your people. Let us live in that joy. Let us live moving towards that morning where there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more darkness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. Let us live in that reality as we embrace it by faith. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?